Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Liz Fosleen, who is the co-author and illustrator of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, No Hard Feelings, and the head of content at Humu, a company that makes work better by using behavioral science and machine learning to make change easier. Her writing and illustrations have been featured on or by the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, The Economist, and NPR's Marketplace. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thanks. So great to be here. I'm so thrilled to have you on. Like, I, I actually must have totally missed the fact that you drew all those things in your book. So I definitely want to talk about that. But awesome. <laughs> before we do, um, uh, as my listeners know, I love to start off the show with something I call bullish and bearish. It's nothing too painful. Um, just three uh, fun questions to get us started. And bullish is if you're for it. Bearish is if you are against it. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. The first one. Do you think it's possible to create a sense of belonging for robots? Ooh, I'm going to say bullish. Oh, nice. <laughs> we're gonna, we're, I'm going to have to ask you about how we okay. do that. Okay. All right. So hold that. Park that for a second. All right. The next one is uh, bullish or bearish. Burnout is real. Uh, definitely bullish. Yeah, I'm so glad that this conversation is finally sort of raised to the top yeah. of the... Yeah, all right, we'll talk about that in a little bit. All right, and the next one, a little lighter, if you will, is artificial intelligence drawing will break a million dollars at auction. Ooh, probably bullish. Um, as an illustrator, I don't want to be bullish on this, um, but I would say seems like it might happen. Well, I got three bullish. You know, I have to really work on this. It's like I get either three bearish or three <laughs> bullish. I've, I've started to fail the mix-up of tough. I've, I think I'm becoming too easy. I gotta, I gotta rethink this. I gotta re-strategize. The robot right. question is really good. <laughs> okay, so let's start there. So let's start there. Um, so create a sense of belonging to to robots. But before we jump in, let's start back back with sort of what that sense of belonging means and why. I would ask you that question. Yeah. So in the book, uh, my co-author Molly West Duffy and I, we describe belonging as diversity is having a seat at the table, inclusion is having a voice, and then belonging is having that voice be heard. And so if you've ever sat in a meeting and someone has interrupted you or you've tried to raise your voice and just felt not confident or felt like people were judging you or there was a chance that there might be reprisal if you said something wrong, you're not experiencing belonging. And so you're also not going to feel free to actually share all the ideas that you have or flag important issues that might prevent a lot of anguish down the road. Well, so and what what how would you define the difference between having a voice and having a voice heard? Yeah, so it's again, like I said, it's having a voice is you can speak up. Um, you've been invited into the meeting. Um, but having that voice be heard is actually having people take your ideas seriously uh, really want you and welcome you into the conversation and so that you feel like what you say is actually going to have an impact on the future discussion or on the product or whatever it is that you're talking about, uh, which is very different than speaking up and then feeling like you're shouting into a void. Well, I love this definition because I think D&I from a diversity and inclusion standpoint to shorten it, right? It, mm -hmm. it, people tend to focus on race, 
gender, sexual orientation, religion, you know, the, the, the sort of defining characteristics. And it was many podcasts ago, I had someone on um, by the name of Lisa Bodell, and she went down this whole conversation of kind of diversity of thought. Mm. And I started paying attention to what that actually meant. And, and you hear mixed, mixed feelings on how can you have diversity of thought? Like, what does that even mean? That's like ridiculous. Yeah. And, and I, I actually feel like this is the way to, to solve that question that I've actually had people ask, because I use that statement of diversity of thought, like having mm. a different point of view and moving away from groupthink and then letting introverts inject their feelings into a conversation and everyone processes, you know, data or questions or problem solving differently. You know, some people like to mull it over. Other people are very quick on their feet. Other people are visual. Other people are listener, like whatever. And I think that that in inclusion um, is having a voice regardless of any of the uh, other characteristics, but then belonging is, well, they, they let me speak, but then they didn't listen to anything I said. It was a waste of my time. So I don't want to speak again. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think, right, what's nice about belonging is that no matter who you are, there are moments in your life that you felt excluded, most likely. Um, Molly and I run workshops and we actually ask people that question, what's a time in your life when you did not feel belonging and really nail down like the specific things that happened in that interaction. And they're usually really small. It's like a gesture or someone was interrupted or they just didn't give you all the information you needed. And so again, it's a, it's a great way of starting to make workplaces like truly more inclusive. Um, that said, you know, I, th I think there are definitely differences that people of certain groups face. Um, so this is not to completely override that or ignore them. Well, you know, the title of the book is No Hard Feelings. So I'm going to guess this is a lot about feelings. And, yeah. I, and I, also, I also read it. So I know it's a lot about feelings. But, you know, underneath everything we were just talking about is having a seat at the table. If you don't, your feelings are hurt, right? You're right. at the table and you don't have a voice. It, you have a different set of emotions. Like, why am I wasting my time? I'm making these up as I sort of go, right? But, and then belonging is, well, I just spoke up. They invited me, check. So I'm not, I don't feel left out. Then mm -hmm. I, I, um, you know, I had a voice. So, oh, I feel like I was, uh, you know, I was um, participating, you know, so my feelings aren't hurt or whatever it might be, check. But then the third is, but then they didn't act on anything or they dismissed what I said. So now I have a different emotion. And you've got a great framework around this kind of, you call it the Swiss army knife for emotions. And yeah. I think it was fantastic way that, dealing with emotion at work, I think is a really tricky tightrope. So I'd love to hear how you sort of talk through that Swiss army knife of emotions. Yeah. So the reason that emotions at work is so tricky is I think because historically we've tried to just suppress emotion in the workplace and say like, you should always check your feelings at the door. Professionals are cool and calm and collected. And we should be generally cool and calm and collected, but it's actually easier to be that if you're doing a lot of internal work to acknowledge what you're feeling, work through the need behind those feelings, and then actually having conversations with people about what you're feeling before it turns into this huge festering feud. Um, and again, why it's difficult is because in the past, I think people just like never talked about feelings, suppressed, ignored, pushed them aside. And then the only emotional expression that we saw in offices was these explosions because no one addressed the issue 
six months ago. And suddenly it's just like the only way that I can express emotion is I'm yelling, I'm freaking out, I'm crying. Um, and so those are, you know, generally unproductive uh, ways to express emotion. So in the book, we really try to encourage people, feel feelings, don't become a feelings fire hose. Like it's not an invitation to just spout everything that's going on in your head, but kind of sit with the feelings again, understand what you need from a situation and then see how you can move forward and, and have an effective conversation to resolve or address that need. And I think that balance is between going back to, you don't want to be a fire hose, right? Sharing too much and then sharing too little, which is also a balance, right? So it's like, how do you, you know, not suppress your emotions, but not let the only emotion you show to your, to use your example, sort of this blow up, right? There has to be, there's something between no emotion and blow up. <laughs> yeah, be, absolutely. Right? right. So how do you, you know, find that balance between sharing too much or sharing too little? Yeah. So we address this really head on in our chapter on leadership and we encourage people. So first of all, anyone can be a leader. Your actions affect the people around you. You can be a role model in any position. Um, and so we really encourage people to practice selective vulnerability, which is kind of to your point, if you're not expressing emotion or you're just a completely calm, cool facade, it's really unnerving and people actually don't trust you. So for example, if there's a round of layoffs and you're just sitting there as if nothing's wrong, that's a little sociopathic. Um, and again, people won't trust you anymore. However, if you start like crying heavily or just completely visibly having an anxious meltdown, people also aren't going to trust you because you're kind of undermining your ability to perform in stressful situations. And so we really encourage people speak to your emotions without getting emotional and then provide a path forward. So in the layoff example, that would be something like, it's a really hard time. I know that everyone's going through a lot right now. I'm feeling it too. That said, here's what I'm doing to make sure this doesn't happen again. Here's what I need from you. And here's kind of how we can work together to get to a better place. So you're again, creating a space where it's okay to feel feelings. You're acknowledging that other people might be having them too and helping them not feel isolated, but then spinning kind of the most realistic but positive path forward. And, and that requires, I'm, I'm going to make a leap here, that it's yeah. going to require some level of EQ. Yes, exactly. So a lot of that is sitting, I mean, one, it's sitting with yourself and saying, what am I feeling and how can I address that feeling again without having it cause me to break down? Um, also reading the room. So if you walk into a room and you can see that everyone's visibly anxious, but no one's talking about it, it actually might be really nice to just flag that for people and say, hey, hard time. I'm feeling it. You're feeling it. Because simply acknowledging that can make people feel a lot better. The One of the worst things is just to feel isolated in, in anxiety or stress and to start feeling bad about feeling bad. Um, the research shows that that is extremely negative and has consequences for our well-being and leads to things like burnout. Well, which was going to be my next question, right? This this kind of fast pace we now all live in with this advancement of technology and, you know, everything that's being said about, you know, people just like sleeping with their cell phones and, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, what that's doing. And then this this hamster wheel of expectations and, you know, everything that this burnout is now making its way to the conversation, which I think is fantastic. And so, you know, what are, what are the ways in which I guess, um, 
you know, you found in the work that you did with the book and outside of that, just on this whole sort of burnout of, of making sure that people feel safe, that they can be vulnerable, that they can communicate, but that they can also step away and take time for themselves if they feel like they're just starting to become, you know, either not productive or they're just, you know, getting crushed. Yeah. So burnout is different than having a bad day. Burnout is when you just chronically feel overwhelmed by everything. You're obsessively thinking about work. You also, it often manifests in just suddenly becoming really cynical about the people around you and your projects. Um, And it's, I think in some Scandinavian countries, it's actually like a treated as something that you need to get time off for um, because it can be so detrimental to your well-being and to the people around you. Um, so one of the biggest things is it's actually, I think if people want to be good at their jobs and managers really need to hear this too, they need breaks. So there was a study of Danish students and, um, randomly were split into two groups and the group that was given a short break before taking a test got significantly higher scores than their peers who didn't get any time to relax. And this kind of bubbles up in a lot of research that, People who are able to put their work aside at the end of the day or go on vacation and are not constantly checking their work email on the beach um, come back and they're more productive, they're less likely to burn out, and it's just a more sustainable path towards success. So I'll give kind of three quick things that people can do to build their detachment muscles. Um, And the first is just creating a work-life transition. So pick something, maybe it's on your commute home, it's a certain train stop. When you hit that place, That's kind of your cue to reflect on the day, what you accomplished, maybe write down a quick list of what you need to do tomorrow, and then you're done for the day with work and you start to just focus on your non-work life. Um, Another thing is to set a non-work goal. So this can be, it's amazing if you're a manager and you can do this with your team, but it can be something like on Tuesday evenings, no one will email each other after 6 p.m. And if you do have something you want to say, you can write the email, but schedule it to be sent out at 8 a.m. the next morning, just so we give ourselves this mental break as a group. Um, And then the last thing in the book, we encourage people uh, try, you know, some people enjoy this, but I would generally advise people try to not mathematize your non-work time. So we, we fall into this thing of like, oh, I have to run this mile in this amount of time. Oh, I'm tracking my steps. Oh, it's like the, the ultimate quantified self. And it's often shown that we actually enjoy experiences less when we're quantifying them. So just having time to be rigorously unproductive, super important. Um, give yourself a Saturday to just do nothing. Well, I, and I love the fact that it's like those small pivots. I think people try to tackle change too much, you know, yeah. like I've never worked out. I'm going to do the Ironman in six months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> On I think, the big island, right? Yeah, like, exactly. It's so important. Or I'm not very communicative. I'm going to share everything like, yeah. you know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. It's, it's so important to just set mini milestones for yourself. And you'll also feel more motivated as opposed to, again, like you said, I'm going to run the Ironman. Well, that's really hard. And you know, you're for six months, you're not going to see really any results because you haven't accomplished this enormous goal you set for yourself. So it's probably better to say this week, I'm going to go to the gym and be on the elliptical for 20 minutes each day. That's a small thing. And every day that you do it, you'll feel good about yourself. Yeah. And, and it, it, it even just, uh, I was, you know, reading something the other day where it's like, look, if, 
if you're trying to make a change, it's like if you just aspire for a 1% change to your point, I normally work till eight o'clock at night. Like I'm just, I'm starting to feel burnout. You know, mm. I'm going to work till 7.30. I'm going to work till seven o'clock. I'm going to work till 6.30. You know what I mean? And you don't go, I'm going to go from working from eight to five because that three hour may stress you out all day and yeah. doesn't actually help you. And yeah. so, you know, or, um, I have all of these meetings. Well, I can't cancel all of them in right. one day, right? So maybe I'll put some other people in my place. Or, you know, I um, I normally give people, you know, 48 hours to do something, you know, because I need it quickly, but then I always end up redoing it. So if I had just given them like another day, it would have been, but you know, like yeah. little things like that, right? Yeah. I also love, um, someone recently gave me the suggestion to, change the calendar meeting default to 15 minutes instead of an hour or 30 minutes because often you know there's the saying that work expands to fill the time you've allocated towards it um so you can usually find that in 15 minutes you can just get through a lot of stuff uh and then you have a little break or you just have you can condense a lot more meetings maybe into the morning and give yourself the afternoon off or not off but time to do heads down work yeah and and I think, uh, you know, it's a, that's a whole nother topic to unpack, right? But Dan Pink talks a lot about when, you know, times yeah. of days that you have meeting, almost like the example you gave with people who had a break before versus after, like when you have your meetings, if they were always in the morning and everyone like showed up late and disheveled and they hadn't really started. And if it's the end of the day, everyone wants to go home. So what's yeah. the right time? Yeah. You know, all of those things. So time of day matters. And then, you know, having clear goals, like, uh, I, I saw something uh, a little bit ago where um, literally when people walked into the meeting, they kept the meeting to a certain number of people so that this was manageable. And they would mm. say, you are coming to this meeting. What's your expectation? Mm. Oh, I like that. And and they would like write down the expectation, yeah. you know, like, well, I came because I wanted to hear blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and then that, then they went through the four or five expectations in the first quote unquote 15 minutes. So everyone got out of the meeting exactly what they wanted to get out of the meeting. That's why you have to keep it small. Otherwise there's 22 expectations and that yeah. doesn't work, <laughs> Yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, and then, so getting back to your 15 minutes is making sure everyone's expectations are met. Then the last 15 minutes is talking about things that weren't covered in those expectations. Like, oh, and, and then literally if someone goes, I wanted to know if, the, if it was gonna rain tomorrow, right? And the person who was holding the meeting goes, this meeting is not about that. Yeah. I love so that. Yeah. You can skip it. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, we've talked about a bunch of stuff, right. Emotions, vulnerability, feelings, uh, you know, listening, um, you know, how to, to make these small changes. Um, but I'd really love, because a lot of this is I'm doing it a certain way now. And I think my way is right. Mm. Or I think my way is the best way. Um, or my way has always worked. And this is the way I've always done it. So I'm not going to change. And I think the difference between that attitude and what we're talking about is that people have to learn how to ask for feedback. Like, are these meetings valuable to you? They're an hour. Should they be a half hour? Should I change the format? Right. Which means you actually have to step out, be a little vulnerable and ask for feedback. And I think that is a huge part of what you spend your time talking and thinking about, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's such what you just said is so important for managers and leaders to hear. So I think we've gotten into this place where it's like, if I'm, if I have reports, feedback is always flowing top down. 
And in fact, you as a manager can do a lot to better support your team, to have a more effective team, if you start asking your reports for feedback. And what's interesting, Adam Grant, who's a Wharton professor, bestselling author, he writes so much about leadership. And he says that the, actually the most frequent question he gets asked is about followership, which is from people who say, I have a suggestion and I just can't get my manager to listen to me or everyone on my team knows that this thing is broken, but the leader just won't hear us or there doesn't seem to be an opportunity to provide them with this super useful information. Um, so I think feedback needs to be a two way street and we all need to get better at adopting this growth mindset, which is it's not weakness to ask for help or to ask for feedback um, or even just to say, what's one thing I could do to improve your life, to improve your workday, to improve this meeting, et cetera. Really important message. Yeah. And I, and I think this is where um, I really like this burnout conversation uh, starting to come to the top. And uh, one of the, the gentleman that I, I work with here at Salesforce um, has created a, a new organization called uncrushed.org. Uh, and it was really about just helping people who feel crushed, like having a place where there's others like them, where they don't feel like they're alone. And I thought it was fantastic, right? So then he reached out to me and said, hey, what, what do you think? And I said, you know, I've never felt I have definitely crushed myself yeah. <laughs> and I'm exhausted and I probably, you know, was, was doing way too many things and I, I, I probably could have been better to my, myself, but if I wasn't being good to myself, I am guessing because it was a little bit ago, right. That I was probably not a great manager and leader mm. and in reflection in having this conversation, because I'd always been a sales leader and so specifically sort of sales marketing or customer service, but let me sit in sales for a second you know, sales is this group that's 24 seven, it holds the revenue number on its back, you know, in a traditional way. I don't mean only for mm -hmm. the marketers listening, <laughs> but, um, you know, that salespeople will carry the revenue on their back. And when the quota numbers miss, they get in trouble. When the quota numbers hit, they never get the add a boy or add a girl. Right. And it's this, it's this, you know, if your customer sends you an email at seven o'clock at night on a Saturday, even though you've made a promise to your team, like we were just talking about, yeah. a salesperson can't go, no, I'm just going to get back to them at 8 a.m. It doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't work. And I don't care if you're selling real estate, cars, jewelry, technology. Yeah. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. When a customer reaches out, you feel an obligation based on your role that you need to respond. Um, and so based on what you've just said, right, this sort of if leaders are feeling crushed and they're feeling a little bit out of control on this. I'm going to guess that my assumption of the downstream implication of that is then they're kind of taking it out on that feedback isn't so great, right? The way that they go from zero to I'm yelling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they're not giving sort of that that space for people to give them feedback. So I'd love to hear what you say uh, for someone who's an individual contributor versus managing a team versus, you know, I'm really a leader, like mm -hmm. managing a whole bunch of people you know, even leaning into what Adam said around uh, followership, you know, thinking about that in a, what are the one or two things? If you think you're burnt out, you need to, I'm making an assumption again, you need to believe that you're probably pushing that burnout to the people around you. Absolutely. Um, there's one of the things I encountered while researching the book was you can't pour from an empty cup. And so if you are feeling the stress, undoubtedly, you're just not going to show up for the people that are leaning on you or need 
information from you as well as you would want to. So one piece of advice I would give to managers specifically is if you're having an incredibly bad day, you're going to have a bad day. There's going to be crazy client emails coming through. Just flag it for your reports because otherwise they are going to perceive your bad mood and worry that it's something they did. So Kim Scott, who wrote Radical Candor, uh, amazing author, she said that she realized she needed to do this when one of her reports came up to her and said, I know what kind of day I'm going to have by how you look when you walk in the door and what kind of mood you're in. And so she realized that she started, she needed to start saying to her team, hey, doesn't even need to go into detail, but like today's a really stressful day. Just want to flag that. You're all fine. I think the team is working great. Um, That's it. And so again, trying to kind of contain as much as possible the bad moods spillover that again can cause so much anxiety in your reports because as humans, we have this tendency, we see someone in a bad mood and we are immediately like, oh, I caused this. What did I do? What do I need to do differently? Um, So that's advice to managers, to individual contributors. I think trying to understand if possible, like the flows of your manager's emotion. So I once worked for someone who was always really cranky before 10 a.m. And so I just never scheduled meetings with him before 10 a.m. Uh, and I think it, it sounds kind of small on its face, but it can do a lot, again, to like facilitate better conversations. And then as a leader, I think it goes back to what I was saying about selective vulnerability. Um, but such a key part of that is like being able to sit with your emotions and acknowledge them. So one thing a lot of leaders do is they schedule like, a half a day, once a quarter, or once a month, just for themselves. So this is, again, just time to think, reflect, um, and, and give themselves kind of the space they need to work through their emotions and not let them spill out to the people around them. Another thing that a lot of leaders um, that we interviewed said is that they form kind of support groups. So often as a leader, it's very lonely because There's not a lot of people that fully understand the constraints and the pressures that you're under. So finding peers who maybe are at different organizations and meeting with them once in a while can be a really nice way to get advice, to feel heard and seen, um, but maybe not let that spill out into actually your organization or your team. We've been talking a lot about you know, sort of workers, managers, things that they can do, spillover. And and for those of you listening to this podcast, two things. One, um, I suggest that you listen to the Adam Grant podcast I did, as well as the Kim Scott on Radical Candor, uh, talking about these topics and I'm unpacking this further uh, beyond what Liz is talking about. Because I think if you listen to this one and Adams and Kim's, you'll get a really great handle, sort of this triangle of how to be really good at giving feedback, taking feedback, and and just being a, a much uh, more present leader. Um, from a lot of the the things that Adam says, and then Dan Pink on the you know what time of day you know you're going to perform best. Um, but when you when you think beyond what we just talked about, that tends to work when someone is sitting in the room or, like you said, walking in. And I see you know in Kim's example, I see how you walk in, and I know how my day is going to be. And that works when you're in the same four walls with people. But you and I both know that there's so many more remote workers now that may already be dealing with their own sense of, you know, I'm not, I don't have a seat at the table because I'm not in the office. I'm an afterthought. I feel isolated, you know? So in, in our last few minutes, uh, you know, for those listening that may be remote workers or manage remote workers, I wanted to make sure we, we tackled this because it's so important today. 
Yeah, this is such a great question. And it's something that we get asked about a lot. And I've also been a remote worker in the past. So I've experienced this firsthand. And I think it's one of the things is, I think when we're communicating digitally, we tend to think, oh, it's just not as important because I don't have all this body language. And so maybe we don't need to talk about emotions. Let's just like get right to business. And it's actually even more important to communicate what's going on. Take maybe just two minutes to do a quick personal check-in. Um, that has many benefits. It helps people remember the human on the other side, which translates into just better communication, better negotiation. So lots of research shows when you take the time to just chat or schmooze a little bit. Uh, the, the study I'm thinking was actually called schmooze or lose. Um, just the both sides reach better negotiation outcomes. So it's all about just injecting the human back into these remote relationships. And one last piece of specific advice I'll give is that remote workers or any just teams that aren't in the same place, they don't have access to these casual interactions where you actually give each other a lot of feedback and praise and, and start to feel really good about each other's people. So this is like eating lunch together, grabbing coffee, even just walking to a meeting together. So really remembering one, try to build in little social times. So that can be schedule a random like half hour to just catch up with someone or get to know someone new over hangout and then two is if you're a manager just remember you need to praise people that aren't in the room with you because um, I think so often as a remote worker you're just getting like the pings from a google doc or the pings on slack about what needs to be done what needs to be edited what needs to be improved and so just remembering these people still need positive reinforcement. Um, so just always keep that in mind, not to forget about praise. Well, fantastic. But before we uh, start to wrap this up, I'd love to hear, you know, having our books came out, we, we have the same publisher and a common editor. So, you know, it came out, I think yours came out. Uh, February of this year. February. So I was August of last year. And I found it very fascinating to hear feedback like after people had read the book, mm. you know, things that I went, dang, I should have said, or I might be, I could have been more clear there, you know, so, and everyone goes, oh, that's okay. You can get it on the next round. I'm like, mm, I, don't, I don't know if there's a next round, but cause I'm still reeling from the first one, yeah. but, you know, but uh, you know, what, what have you heard from, you know, after having sort of the birth of no hard feelings, right. It's been out there for a couple of months now. What, 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 what have you learned? What have you heard since the book came out? Yeah, so it's interesting because you and I have talked a lot about feedback. Um, and all the feedback that we've talked about is like firsthand feedback. You're asking for it. You're receiving it in person or over email. You know who it's coming from. Um, but a lot of the questions that we get, particularly from women, are, I've just received this feedback second or third hand. And it's vague, it's not specific, it's kind of about my personality, and I don't know how to act on it. So often we hear women will say, I just heard kind of through the grapevine that I need to be more measured, or I'm too aggressive. And that's extremely, it's devastating, and also anxiety inducing, because again, you don't really know who said it, so you can't pinpoint an interaction or a moment that might have caused someone to give you that feedback, you don't even know how valid the feedback is. You know, not everyone knows you well enough to give good feedback. Um, and so there, my co-author and I have been thinking about this a lot in the past few months. And we, the advice we give generally is, if there's anything that feels true about the feedback, reflect on that and go back to your manager or a colleague and say, 
hey, I heard this, or you don't even have to necessarily speak to it, but just say, in the next meeting, can you point out one thing that I might be able to do better? Um, and so again, you're trying to pinpoint like specific things that you could act on, because that will make you feel better. That will give you more information. Um, and then the other is, you know, just some of it is just growing a little bit of a tough skin. Um, and if there's nothing about that feedback that feels accurate to you, and maybe you even ask like a confidant that you have at work and they don't validate that feedback, they say like, I don't see that at all. Um, then some of it is just unfortunately trying to move past it uh, and, and not letting it affect you. And definitely easier said than done. Um, but not all feedback is valid. And if you're not, if someone isn't telling you that directly or there's not a specific moment um there's not necessarily a lot that you can do or necessarily should do well that's great advice i mean i i think um more than anything, uh, for those listening that if, if this is something that resonated with you, I, I, you know, I just, I highly recommend you pick up no hard feelings. Cause it's a, it's a great read. It's, um, full of fantastic, amazing award-winning sketch notes, <laughs> <laughs> which Liz drew, <laughs> which is awesome. Uh, and, and I think that it's, it's something that's really approachable. You know, it's not so kind of heavy and academic that you get lost in everything. It's just, it's pretty, it's really practical. So, you know, Liz, I, I just absolutely appreciate, um, your time with me on the what's next podcast. And, and uh, I'm going to ask you one last question and then I'll let you go. And that is if you could have dinner with anybody alive, you know, living or not living, and, you know, some people say one person, some people say a couple, but uh, who would that be? <laughs> oh, I'm just going to say the first name that popped into my head, which was uh, Cass Sunstein, who wrote the book or co-authored the book Nudge and worked under the Obama administration. And he does so much around what are just small changes that we can make in every facet of our lives to help us get where we want to go faster. Um, and I just would love to pick his brain more on that. Um, I think there's such a big power in making small changes uh, that have a big impact. Uh, so I think that would be a fascinating conversation. All right. Well, please let our listeners know uh, how they can keep up with what you're doing and all the great uh, all the great things. What's the best way to do that? Yeah. So we have a website, Liz and Molly, and Molly's M-O-L-L-I-E dot com. And we have assessments you can take about do you feel belonging? What's your emotional expression tendency? We have guides on how to give feedback, get feedback. And then for the illustrations, there's we're always posting more on Instagram under Liz and Molly. So that's a more lighthearted way to follow us. Well, excellent. Well, thank you again, Liz, for spending a little bit of time with us on the What's Next podcast. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your work as well. You too. Thanks so much for having me. This was This was a lot of fun. What a fun conversation with Liz. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. There was a few things that really stood out for me. The first one was... When she said, you can't pour from an empty cup. I just love that just as a visual and a thought that when you are just absolutely fried as a team member, as a manager, or as a leader, it reflects on the way you behave at work. And I think it has impact on what those around you will do. So that was a great way to think about if you're feeling empty, it may not be the best day to do certain things, that it's just... Uh, best for another time. The other one was selective vulnerability at work, just not sharing too much, 
uh, or sharing too literal. And, and it's okay to feel feelings at work, but you have to learn how to express those feelings and allow people to express feelings back, even in the form of feedback. But the third one I really, really enjoyed, which was right at the beginning of our conversation, talking about diversity is having a seat at the table. Inclusion is having a voice and being able to speak up. But it was really about belonging. That is having your voice heard and taken seriously. I hope you enjoyed this podcast with Liz as much as I did. And please subscribe, tell your friends, leave some feedback, and I'll look forward to having you join me next time. Thank you for listening on the What's Next podcast.